Hello, and thanks for tuning into Intangible Assets, a podcast by the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. I'm your host, David Lizabram. The California Lawyers Association is the bar association for all California attorneys. Our mission is to promote excellence, diversity, and inclusion in the legal profession and fairness in the administration of justice and the rule of law. So in this episode, I'll be talking to Dave Branfman of Branfman Mayfield Bustarde Reckenthal LLP. Dave has been practicing trademark and entertainment law for more than 30 years and is heavily involved with the IP law section. Dave and Elizabeth Rest recently co-founded the Cannabis IP Interest Group, and he's active in the developing cannabis industry. And here's my interview with Dave Branfman. Okay, Dave Branfman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to have you here. So Glad let's, to be here. Let's start at the beginning. Where, uh, where did you grow up? Grew up outside of New York City in a little town that had been home to the likes of uh, Groucho Marx and F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, called Great Neck, New York, about 20 miles outside of New York City. Okay. And those were your contemporaries? Well, not quite. <laughs> not quite. But heroes, <laughs> okay. nonetheless. And did you know a lot of lawyers growing up? Don't think I knew any lawyers growing up, really. My father, ironically, my father used to talk about a friend of his who was a patent lawyer. But I never met the man. But my father used to talk about the guy in glowing terms. and But I didn't really understand what it was. or But that's about as close as I got to lawyering. Okay. No, I didn't have any lawyers in the family or anything like that. Okay. And you went off to college. What were you planning on doing? Yeah. Did, when I went to college, I wasn't really sure where it was all going, except I was trying to avoid going into the textile business, which was my father's business. The Schmata business? The Schmata business in New York, right. And I believe it was between my sophomore and junior year, or between my junior year and senior year, I ended up doing an internship for a law firm in Rochester, New York. I went to college in upstate New York below Rochester. And and the school had a relationship with uh, lawyers, law firms, the city, think all kinds of public agencies in Rochester. And they set me up with an internship for six weeks for a law firm in Rochester. And I just loved it. I just loved it. Work, being with other lawyers and seeing what they did and good work and members of the community. And it was a very hot summer and they had an air-conditioned office. And I, <laughs> that was very cool. And just to... Fill in the blanks. What school was this? Alfred University in upstate New York, out on beautiful Route 17. Okay. Yeah. And what type of law were the people in the firm? They were, they were business lawyers, and they did wills and trusts, but the founder of the firm was an, envir an early environmentalist, and he had, he had founded a pro bono research laboratory. He founded and funded a pro bono research laboratory, which would do all kinds of environmental testing, rivers, lakes, streams in, in and around the Rochester area, and if they found bad things going on, he would, on behalf of the community and on behalf of the nonprofit, advocate for change and, when necessary, file lawsuits. And I thought, wow, this guy, what a great thing. The guy is blending business, the, the regular stuff, the bread and butter, contract disputes and, and real estate disputes and, and uh, wills and trusts. But he also was doing all this pro bono work, and you know he was really devoted to it, and it was really very inspirational. And when I got home after the summer, 
And my parents asked, how did it go? And I said, it went well. I'm thinking about going to law school. I think they got down on their knees. <laughs> they were so grateful <laughs> that I wasn't going to, you know, go like off, you know, and join, become a deadhead or something. <laughs> and what year were you in college? Uh, let's see. This was, co- I graduated college in 1975. So I started aspiring to the law in around 73, 74. Okay. Yeah. And did you go directly to law school? Yeah, I went right to law school, decided California was the place for me. I figured if I went to law school in New York or New Jersey, I'd never have really have a chance to leave. I'd get locked in. But if I went to law school in California, I'd have options. I could either stay in California if I liked it or go back to New York if I wanted to, and I'd have more options. But once I got to San Diego, I came right to San Diego for, to go to University of San Diego School of Law. Once I got here, I realized very quickly that I'd rather live in San Diego and visit New York than live in New York and visit San Diego. And that was 45 years ago. And had you previously been to California? Once. Did a long road trip with some friends uh, just before graduating from high school. Our job was to deliver a car from New York to my friend Leon's uh, sister in uh, Laurel Canyon. Mm-hmm. And this was 1970, and she was whole, all part of the Laurel Canyon music scene that was going on. Joni Mitchell and Carol King and James Taylor. And our job was to get Leon's father's car to California, give it to the sister, and fly home. So we had like a 10-day road trip and five days in California, and it was sort of a life changer, <laughs> sounds to say the least. Yeah. Okay, so in law school, were you thinking about intellectual property? Not really. Didn't really have much of a direction in law school other than to graduate. That was the, my number one objective. But I had, I had played music in high school and college and played some in law school. I was a very bad drummer and thought about music, TV, film. I was kind of interested in that and thought about maybe going to law sc- uh, film school, maybe thought about getting involved with film. So I was sort of inclined towards the arts. But honestly, other than... What they say at the end of every baseball game, which is this is a copyrighted broadcast authorized by Major League Baseball and may not be reproduced without the written consent of Major League. I never really knew what a copyright was. Uh, there were no, in the, in the 70s, there weren't any real copyright or IP classes, as I recall. I may be mistaken, but I don't think there were any IP classes at the University of San Diego. So I had, I had to learn it all afterwards. And so what happened after you got to law school? Did a little bit of everything. General, master, uh, jack of all trades, master of none, and decided uh, after a couple of years of that, didn't like it very much, decided to look for a specialty, something I could get good at. And because I had been interested in music, TV, and film, I was gravi- I started gravitating towards cable television law because this was, uh, again, like 76, 77. Oh, they had uh, 20, 30 channels on cable TV and they didn't know where the content was going to come from. So it was a great time for content creators, filmmakers and TV producers and writers and directors because nobody knew how to fill up 20 channels of stuff because there was only, back then there were five channels, you know, three major networks and a local independent station and PBS and that was about it. And 20, 30 channels seemed like a need for endless supply of content. Where's it all going to come from? So I started learning everything I could about cable TV, and that led to having to understand intellectual property. And then I had a client who fell into a, a handle of divorce 
for a woman who was an exotic dancer, to put it euphemistically, and she had a stage name. And may she rest in peace. She was a lovely lady, Annie Ample. And I think that was the first trademark I ever registered. Was And so I started learning about trademarks um, because I had to sort of help her out and reached out to some lawyers I knew who were trademark lawyers, and they helped me out. And, and then I just fell in love with it. And so how did you go from this one one-off exotic case to then building a kind of... A- you know, it was challenging, and, and it's something that I still, to this day, recommend to young lawyers who want to become whatever it is they want to become, you know, whatever specialty. Maybe they want to, they really want to be a criminal defense lawyer. Maybe they really want to be a, a bankruptcy lawyer. Maybe they really want to be an IP lawyer, an entertainment lawyer. But, but what I did, and it's tough, and I was lucky at the time. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids, didn't have a whole lot of obligations. I drew a line in the sand one day and I said, I am now an entertainment, I declare myself an entertainment lawyer. I'm going to read everything I can, go to every conference I can, become an, as best, as good a entertainment IP lawyer as I can. And I'm not going to take any other cases. I'm just refusing every other client. Of course, the next day when it was rent day on my house in PB and I wasn't sure where the rent was coming from and somebody else came in, a new client came in to hire me to do a divorce, it was very hard to turn down the money. But I did because I kind of knew in my heart of hearts if I, if I took the case and I kept distracting myself from what I felt was my goal, it was going to be a problem. And it was, it was tough to turn down the check, but... It was worth it in the long run. So it sounds like much like you knew, you would, if you stay, stayed in New York, you're yeah. going to always be in New York. Same yeah, right. thing. If you stayed being the jack-of-all-trades lawyer. Right. I, I, never get re- I never get good at anything. Okay. So you started to build up an entertainment practice. Right. And then it morphed into an IP practice because entertainment in San Diego was and still is a very hard way to make a living. There just aren't, there isn't enough of a base of, of clients, in my humble opinion, in San Diego to sustain a thriving entertainment practice. The, 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 still, I think to this day in 2019, the entertainment practice is mostly in um, New York, L.A., and Nashville. And you were a free agent at the time, so yeah, did you consider agent. moving to L.A.? Or? I did. I just wasn't, just wasn't for me. L.A. just wasn't for me. I, I came to San Diego, fell in love with San Diego. Summer was always my favorite time of year. L.A. was just... I got tired of meeting people who told me they were best friends with Warren Beatty's chauffeur, <laughs> and that was supposed to impress me, and I, I just couldn't... No disrespect to any lawyers in L.A. who may be listening to that. I, it's a great place, and I love visiting L.A., and, and, but it just what, for me, it just wasn't for me. And so, okay, so kind of fast-forwarding. Yeah. Uh, one of the aspects of law, or the thing that you're probably most focused on now, is cannabis law. So when did you first conceive of there being, other than criminal, a legal aspect to cannabis? About 10 or 11 years ago, I was talking with another lawyer that I was very friendly with, who had actually clerked for me when he was in law school. And he became a lawyer, and we stayed in touch and would chat from time to time, but 
this, that, and the other thing. And he was describing to me a criminal case that he was defending, a dispensary, a, a medical marijuana dispensary operator in San Diego who was being charged, I think, by the district attorney for violating state law for operating a medical mar marijuana dispensary. And I was fascinated by this, by what he was doing and the defenses. And then as we talked more and more about it, it dawned on me that this was a coming industry that I didn't quite really understand. Up until that moment, I, I was out of, I was not part of the medical marijuana scene at all. Yes, I grew up in the 60s and went, you know, went to college in the 70s, but by 2010, I was already a family guy and all that and had missed the whole medical marijuana, rise of medical marijuana in California. But this was like a light bulb went on because it dawned on me that as this progressed, there was this the supply chain from growing the product to manufacturing the product, if it was turned into something besides just uh, plant material, but elixirs and drinks and tinctures, and then it had to be distributed and it had to be sold, it dawned on me that as this became a real live industry, it was only a matter of time before the investors and the venture capitalists were going to come in and want to be involved, but the smart ones were going to start asking, gee, how do I protect my investment in your dispensary or your cultivation unit, your cultivation facility? Where are the copyrights? Where are the patents? Where are the trademarks? Where are the trade secrets? I need to be able to collateralize my investment and that there was going to be this huge opportunity for a crossover between legal cannabis and intellectual property law and kind of like when I declared myself an entertainment lawyer in the uh, the 80s. I just decided to learn everything I could about cannabis and the law and IP and started going to every conference and reading everything I could and meeting people and just uh, basically learning everything I could. And one thing led to another. You know, the first, first conference I went to normal national organization for the reform of marijuana laws conference in 2011 2012 and these were mostly hard-working old-school criminal defense lawyers fighting the good fight and I show up as kind of a cannabis IP business lawyer and they looked at me like I had two heads and six legs because I was out of place by the next year they invited me back to be a speaker because they saw the head of normal, Keith Stroop, who is still, I think, uh, legal counsel, founded normal in 1970, fresh out of law school. He saw this need and created this nonprofit. And like many good lawyers, pursued his vision and for 45, 50 years has been pursuing this. And, and Keith rapidly realized that this was happening and embraced me. And um, I'm a big fan of Keith's. He's been fighting the fight since something like 12% of the U.S. population believe that marijuana should be decriminalized, and now it's up to 60-65%. So um, for somebody who's listening to this who maybe is a general, let's say, trademark practitioner, and yeah. somebody walks into their office and says, uh, hey, I have a cannabis product and I want to register the trademark just like anybody else. What are the very kind of first issue spotting type things that the attorney would need to know about? Well, there's a, there's a host of them. 
we start with, or I like to start with, explaining to the client from the get-go that marijuana is still, cannab marijuana cannabis, still illegal under federal law and still illegal under state law, even in California, if you don't follow the rules. And it's not a free lunch. And that we have certain ethical obligations that we have to comply with. And uh, we can't and we're not going to advise them on how to break the law. And they have to be aware of the risks associated with engaging in this industry. And that we are just going to help them with the IP issues. And that it's very important somewhere between very important and mandatory, that they also have a experienced cannabis compliance and regulatory lawyer on their team, because we're not going to advise them about how to comply and how to, how to comply with both state, local, state, and federal law. That's a specialty unto itself. And we actually put in our engagement letters with new clients that we are being retained to do the IP work only and will not in, engage in providing advice about uh, how to comply with local, state, and federal law. And it provides a little bit of a safe heaven, and it's good for the client. They, they need to have that as part of the team. So that's really step number one. And then step number two is to try to explain, if, especially if they're brand new, as we all know, with any kind of client that comes in first time, let's say, what's the difference between a trademark, a patent, a copyright, and a trade secret in general, and how they work together, and what, what's similar about them, and what's different about them. And then we dig down into the unique aspects of this as it applies to the legal cannabis industry, because there are some very specific nuances about this, because cannabis is still illegal under federal law. By the way, there's one other prefatory thing we also do, which is if, uh, particularly now in California, since January 1 of 2018, where California has enacted laws that decriminalize possession, the cultivation, sale, and possession of marijuana, aka cannabis, for adults over the age of 21, we ask the client to or the potential client to verify for us that they either are licensed by the state of California or endeavoring to get licensed by the state of California. Because if a client tells us that they have no intention of getting a license from the state of California and they instead prefer to operate in the black market or the illicit market, we will not take them as a client. We're just not going to go down that road. In the old days, before there was the highly regulated regimen that there is now in California as of January 1 of last year, 2018, if somebody was taking the steps to comply with the various hodgepodge of state of California laws, there was a credible argument that they were, there could be a credible argument they were complying with the law. But now if they say, we have had potential clients say, we have no intention, we can't, we can't afford to get into the regulated marketplace, it's too burdensome, it's too expensive, we can't do that, and then we have to say, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't be your lawyer. Thank you very much. So I recommend that to anybody who's thinking about getting into this is to, you know, decide for yourself how you're going to handle that when that comes up. But we make sure it comes up in the first meeting. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And it's sort of CYA, but also helps the There's client that. understand what's going on. So then we have this dichotomy between, let's say, state of California law and laws in other states like Colorado, Washington, and Oregon that have decriminalized the, the cultivation 
possession, sale, and manufacturing of marijuana if you comply with the state laws. And the federal law, which for the most part, uh, except with respect to now as of uh, December 20th of last year of 2018, with respect to hemp and CBD, but in general, uh, cannabis is still illegal under federal law. It's under Schedule One. It's in the same category as heroin and LSD on the federal basis. It's very difficult to get any trademarks registered on the federal level. Interestingly enough, as we all know, there's the Patent and Trademark Office, but figuratively, there's the patent door and the trademark door. And there's nothing in the patent law that prohibits the Patent Office from issuing a patent for cannabis or a cannabis product, even though cannabis is illegal under Schedule One, Whether or not that product, when practiced and put into, into the marketplace, is illegal under Schedule One as a, as a subject maybe for another day, but the Patent Office will not reject a patent application if it's for, let's say, a new strain of cannabis, merely because it's illegal under federal law. On the trademark side, however, the trademark office will reject a trademark application for a product or a service that either is cannabis, touches cannabis, or contains cannabis. So, for example, if you are applying for a trademark for a lab testing facility that tests cannabis because it touches cannabis, the PTO will reject that application. And that's still, that's a very high bar to overcome, no pun intended. And so that raises challenges. There's some interesting strategies there to discuss. If the client believes that cannabis is likely to come off of Schedule 1 sometime in the next year or two, perhaps there's a strategy to consider, which is file the trademark application, know it's going to get rejected, file your response to the refusal wait six months, file your response to the refusal, get another refusal, file either another response or file an appeal, and play out the the time card or the, the time clock, and maybe cannabis, by the time you run out of appeals, the law will have changed, and meanwhile you're on board, rather than wait whatever it is, a year or two or three or five, for the law to change that. If you lined up 100 trademark lawyers, you'd probably get 100 different answers about whether that's a good or bad strategy, but I think it's a strategy to consider. In the meantime, on the federal side, we have clients in the cannabis industry who are filing trademark, federal trademark applications for what I call the non-radioactive goods and services, clothing, consulting services, educational services. So we've got, for example, dispensaries, now retailers, who provide yoga and Pilates classes on Saturdays or Thursday nights under the brand name of the dispensary. So file a trademark application for educational services for yoga and Pilates classes under the brand name and get some protection where you can. The opportunity to make puns in this industry are abundant. Sometimes I can't help myself, but I call this the planting the seed strategy for filing for clothing, as long as the client, of course, has the the bona fide, legit intent to use the trademark or the service mark on those ancillary services, which most of them do, or many of them do, because a lot of these cannabis, the legal cannabis companies, now they really consider themselves, they don't consider themselves pot companies or cannabis companies, they really consider themselves lifestyle brands. So they're going to have clothing. They're going to have other 
They may have videos. They're going to have instructional videos, how to grow it, how to cook it, how to do this with it, and how to do that. So there's all these other opportunities. And then there's the state law opportunity under the various states that allow trademark registrations for cannabis. Point of fact. I mean, up, up front, no problem. Hmm. So there's a lot of different strategies. A lot uh, of strategies. A lot of things to think about. And thanks. That was, that was very helpful and informative. So uh, just pivoting to the IP section, Yeah. when did you first get involved with the IP section? I think it's been about five or six years. I had attended the IP, the annual IP Institute for several years. It's the IP sections, intellectual property law section, annual uh, three-day institute, bring together great minds and fabulous seminars day in and day out, and then some networking events. I had attended that off and on, and then just got to know more and more people who were really involved with uh, running the IP section through the executive committee, and just found them to be a really great group of Lawyers, even though they're technically competitors, it's a very collaborative section. And when the IP Institute came to San Diego five or six years ago, my firm decided to host a little happy hour one night at the Hard Rock downtown. And that really drew people in, and I got closer and closer. And the next thing I knew, I was being asked to help out and get on the ex- executive committee and help with organizing the Institute and all the various events. And and uh, one thing led to another, and it's been terrific because um, I feel like I have friends and colleagues all over the state of California who I can pick up the phone. If I, if I need uh, something filed in Sacramento tomorrow, I can call up uh, Andy Stroud in Sacramento, and he'll take my call, and, hey, Andy, can you help me out? Or who's this judge? What do you know? What should I do? What should I avoid? And it's like having a de facto kind of ad hoc firm without all the headaches of having a firm. And of course, they can do the same with me. They can, if they need anything in San Diego, pick up the phone, give me a call. And when I go to the uh, institute and I go to the webinars and the seminar, go to the seminars, it feels like we're putting the band back together. You, you know that feeling. You're, you're a musician in your, in your secret life. <laughs> you know what it's like when you put the band back together. Absolutely. It's a, it's a great feeling. Yeah, and you've also been instrumental in bringing cannabis law into the IP section. That's a little bit of... Uh, I, happen to be, I happen to be at the right place at the right time. And uh, again, a very receptive group of people who are open to new ideas. And we've been doing webinars and we've been doing seminars. And, and little by little by little, as the industry grows, it's becoming more and more acceptable. I mean, when I started doing this 10 years ago, no big law firm, 10, 11 years ago, no big law firm would ha- allow any of their lawyers to do marijuana law that was too too risque but now they all have almost all of them have cannabis law departments now and so it's become more and more acceptable and just this last june the uh, executive committee of the ip section was uh, open and amenable to forming a new interest group which is like a, a study group or a committee called the cannabis intellectual property law interest group There's a trademark interest group. There's a copyright interest group. There's 10 or 12 interest groups for all the subsets under IP law. And we've now added the cannabis IP law interest group. And uh, we have our first 
meeting coming up shortly, and we're going to have monthly meetings, and then parlay that into webinars and seminars and provide an opportunity for other IP lawyers who are interested in contributing, learning, listening, uh, helping out to have a forum where we can really learn more about this as the industry and the law changes, which it's rapidly doing. Well, congratulations to you and Elizabeth Brest as the yes. founders. And uh... Elizabeth couldn't have done it without Elizabeth. She's a uh, secret weapon uh, in the best sense of the word. She's a force well, the secret's to be reckoned with. The secret's out. She's a force to be reckoned with. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you wanted to share with the members of the section or anybody listening to the show? You know, I would just say for to members of the section, if you're not as involved as you'd like to be with with the IP section or with any of the interest groups, we're open to new people, new ideas. Please join us. uh, Get on board. And we'd love to have you join us. Great. Well, thanks a lot. We will uh, let the listeners know how to get in touch with you, to get in touch with your firm, or to follow up if there's any questions or any uh, anything they wanted to, to be in touch with you about. And uh, again, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you for listening to Intangible Assets, a podcast by the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. We have several MCLE webinars coming up, including one on how to comply and thrive under the California Consumer Privacy Act and one on mediation as an effective tool in resolving IP disputes. For information about the webinars, you can go to the website calawyers.org slash IP events. That's calawyers.org slash IP events. And if you're interested in joining the intellectual property law section of the California Lawyers Association, visit calawyers.org slash join IP. Finally, if you want to send us an email about the show, you can send it to podcast at calawyers.org. We look forward to hearing from you, and I would really like to hear your suggestions, comments, suggested guests or topics, anything that would make this show valuable to you. Uh, we really want to hear it. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time on Intangible Assets. <laughs>